Well, good morning, everyone. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 29, it's going to be our passage this morning. And I would like to start today with a little um, illustration, actually, if I might. Uh, so, imagine with me for a moment this beautiful plastic cup uh, is your heart. And this water here is kind of like the love of God. And as we read in Romans 5, poured into your heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. It's beautiful, right? Life-giving, empowering, refreshing, life-changing. It's amazing. Except often, I think, in reality, maybe a better prop if we're going to talk about our, our heart, is perhaps this sieve, <laughs> right? So this is God trying to work into our lives, and it tends to go in one ear and right out the other. Okay, it's not completely lost. There's a little bit of water here in the sieve. Uh, it's not completely wasted, or, or maybe if you don't want to be quite so cynical, it's not quite so bad. Maybe we're more like like leaky sponges here, wet rags. We sort of collect it, but then it all drips out eventually over time. And this isn't a new problem, right? This sieve-like or wet rag-like uh, aspect to human nature and to our hearts. For example, if you think that Deuteronomy is feeling a little repetitive, 29 chapters in, it's because it is on purpose. Moses treads the same ground over and over and over again because he understands the human condition. After having led the people for 40 years, he knows firsthand just how, how sieve-like their hearts and minds are, right? How quickly they could forget the Lord's works. God's presence with them, God's provision for them, how quickly they could turn away from God's covenant and his promises. And so here, again, 29 chapters into the book, Moses recounts for the people their shared history of God's boundless work in their lives. And Moses calls them again to keep the words of the covenant and to do them so that they might prosper in the land. But there's a new twist here, because Moses doesn't just want them to uh, 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 not forget, to remember and not forget. His concern in this chapter, and the focus of our sermon today, is willful, ongoing disobedience. You see, Moses' warning is against the deceitful and the hypocritical person who says all the right words, but without any intention of actually ever doing them. So instead of a sieve, perhaps a more accurate representation here for our message today would be that this plate, this is willful, disobedient, deceitful sin covering our hearts, keeping God's word from penetrating or having any impact. It just runs right down the other side. Hard, impenetrable, no access. 
complete rejection of God's word. And Moses presents for us today in our passage a dire warning for anyone who would live life like this. Destruction awaits the deceitful and the disobedient. Now this is a a, a tough text for us today, but before we get to God's judgment, the very first observation I want you to see from the text is actually an emphasis on God's patience with and his provision for sinful people. So if you look with me in your text at verses uh, 5 and 6, and he says, I've led you for 40 years in the wilderness. Your clothes have not worn out uh, on you, and your sandals have not worn off your feet. You have not eaten bread, and you have not drunk wine or strong drink, that you may know that I am the Lord your God. The people wandered in the desert for 40 years before reaching the promised land. That's a long time. 40 years ago was 1983. Right? (laughs) That's a long time. I was nine and a half years old. That's the year the original Mario Brothers came out, before they were super. (laughs) Ronald Reagan was president. Right? Think about everything that has happened since 1983. The births, the deaths, the, the ups, the downs, the wars, the leadership changes, the technological advancements, the changes in your own lives. 40 years is a huge chunk of time. And 40 years prior to giving this sermon in Deuteronomy 29, Moses and the people of God had stood right on the edge of the promised land, poised to enter in and take possession of it. But at the last minute, the people had turned back in fear, and their punishment was now to wander in the desert until that entire generation died out. But what strikes me here in this passage is that God didn't just wipe them out instantly. I mean, he could have done that. And there are moments on this journey when large numbers of people are struck down by plagues or by snakes. But there was a disciplinary effect to the wandering. Those destined to die without entering the land served as a model, as a warning for the next generation. And here we see such incredible patience from God because the Lord graciously continues to provide both food and clothing even for the disobedient, right? Even for those destined to die in the desert for 40 long years. God isn't bitter or harsh or vindictive. Now, I don't know how exactly it was that their sandals didn't wear out. Maybe it was a, a supernatural protection, or, or maybe it's just a poetic way of emphasizing the extent of God's provision for them. But either way, it points both to God's patience and to his kindness. And the same goes for the food, right? The reference here to the fact that they didn't eat bread or strong drink is another way of saying they didn't need to provide their own food. They didn't harvest grain and millet. They didn't plant grapes and wait for them to to be able to harvest them or ferment them into wine. They couldn't. They're wandering in a desert. They're completely at the mercy of God. But despite their disobedience, God continued to provide manna and water for them on a daily 
basis throughout their entire journey across the board for everyone. Not just those destined to enter into the promised land, but even for the disobedient generation. And why would he do that? Well, look at the end of verse 6. He says, So that you may know that I am the Lord your God. The Lord who disciplines those whom he loves. The Lord who shows mercy to those whom he leads. The Lord who showers grace on those who don't deserve it. That's you. That's me. Right? Even in our moments of sin, even when we feel like we're wandering in the desert, even when we know God is disciplining us for our disobedience, he continues to provide, continues to lead, continues to protect. And often in the most mundane ways imaginable, right? Just air to breathe, uh, food to eat, bodies that can receive them both. And all this so that you may know that the Lord is truly your God. Truly present with you in your suffering. Truly present with you in your times of trial and difficulty. Truly present with you in moments of grief and sorrow. But there is something more here. So if you look at verse 9. Although God is the one who moves first in the relationship. He expects a response of faithful obedience from the people. And so Moses says, Therefore, keep the words of this covenant and do them, that you may prosper in all that you do. And then Moses lists all the people who have gathered there to hear this message, right? You can imagine the camera has been narrowly focused on Moses this entire time, and then it kind of pans around, and you start to see who he's been speaking to, right? The heads of your tribes, the elders, your officers, the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, the sojourner who is in the camp, from the one who chops your wood to the one who draws your water. Men, women, young, old, rich, poor, noble, and lowly alike. The command to keep the words of the covenant and to do them, it applies across the board to everyone. No exception. Not only is everyone worshiping together, right? A very early example of the kind of corporate worship model that we try to replicate here. All people, all ages, worshiping together. But everyone is also called to obedience together as well. The covenant cuts across all social boundaries and distinctions. So no one is too rich to ignore it, and no one is too poor to be excluded from it. But then imagine the camera zooming out even more, because this covenant, it wasn't made merely with these specific people standing on that plane thousands of years ago. Right? It's a covenant that extends out through time. And so we read in verse 14, It is not with you alone that I'm making this sworn covenant, but with whoever is standing here with us today before the Lord and whoever is not with us today. God calls all his people into a binding relationship wherever and whenever they may be. 
So it's a promise that extends out not just geographically, but chronologically down through the generations to you and to me, called now in Christ to be a part of the people of God. And although it would seem to be in our nature to, 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 to forget, right, the sieve-like nature of our, of our minds and our hearts, God graciously and patiently keeps calling us to remember through the provision of His Word, right? Through the gift of His Spirit, through our private worship at home, through our corporate worship here together, through our shared communion meal, which we're going to experience here in a few moments, to our shared fellowship meal after our service, to the Bible studies in our homes and our our prayer meetings and our equip groups and every other little discipleship interaction in between. God's patience, God's provision for His ever-forgetful, frequently disobedient children. These are all gifts Right, set out before us to help us truly know the Lord and then to respond to such knowledge with humble obedience. That's what he's calling us to. Now the second observation that I want you to see here today is God's warning to deceitful and idolatrous people. This is in verses 16 through 21, so uh, follow along as they read here in verse 16. You know how we lived in the land of Egypt and how we came through the midst of the nations through which you passed. And you've seen their detestable things, their idols of wood and stone, of silver and gold, which were among them. Beware, lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away today from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the word of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart." This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. Now in this short section, Moses warns the people of two very clear and present dangers. First, he warns them of the idols out there, around them, and the nations around them. But secondly, he warns them of the deceit that resides in here, in their hearts. Now, of course, none of this was new information, right? The people of God had not only been born and raised among the gods and idols of Egypt, but they had also been repeatedly exposed to the influence of all kinds of other foreign gods and idols on their journeys as well. All the time in the desert was mostly free from these foreign influences. The closer they got to the promised land, right, the more they were exposed to these other gods and demonic influences, pagan idols. And Moses says, for like the 50th time in this book, watch out, watch out. And he uses very strong language. I'm not a a Hebrew expert or scholar, 
But in my research on this passage, I learned the, the Hebrew words here translated as detestable and idols, they convey the most extreme level of disgust imaginable. We just have one word, idol. Moses basically, in Hebrew, is equating these idols with animal waste. I'm trying to be polite here on a Sunday morning. But that's what he says they are. And such mockery is not meant to minimize or downplay the very real danger that such worthless idols posed to the Israelites. Moses was keenly aware of their seductive allure. He knew exactly how easily the people could be led astray by their false promises of comfort and security and fertility and strength and power as we continue to be today. Right, we talked in here extensively about the danger of idols because they are an ever-present danger that threaten our faith on a regular basis, always over-promising and under-delivering, baiting us with false assurances of meaning and success before silently hooking us with compulsions that lead us away from God. And Moses says, Beware, don't let your heart be swayed by these detestable false gods. But it's not just the false gods and idols out there that are the problem. Because Moses also clearly points inwards as well, calling out the dangerous deceitfulness of the human heart. And so he says, Beware, lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, And then he explains what he means. He says, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his own heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. Now this picture here is of the gimpy, gimpy bush. Actually, it can grow into a tree, reaches up to 30 feet tall. It's one of the most poisonous plants in the entire world, and you will never guess where it lives. Anyone? Australia, of course, right? Uh, God's like, look, I took all the dangerous things in the entire world, I put them in one place, an island, no less, and still you want to go live there. (laughs) So this plant, it's covered from top to bottom with these Almost microscopic little tiny spikes. You kind of, oh, the, the leaves, the stalks, the, the flowers, the fruit, all of it. They're like little tiny fangs if you look at them under a microscope. And there are thousands of them. And these, when touched, inject a poison into their victim that causes some of the most intense stinging pain imaginable. The poison basically works in your cells to keep the, the, the pain channels open so they never shut. So the pain just goes on and on. It doesn't like wear off over time. It just keeps going. And this poison is stable over time. So uh, people can report ongoing pain months, even years later. In fact, one of the ways that they give you for removing these little spikes from your skin is to pour dilute hydrochloric acid on it to try and burn these spikes off. Anytime hydrochloric acid is the solution, I don't want to know what the problem is. 
And if this plant existed in the promised land, Moses would surely have used it as an object lesson, as an example here, because he warns the people against letting any kind of bitter root grow up to produce poisonous fruit in your life. He says the dangers of deceit are every bit as toxic and venomous and harmful and dangerous. They will cause just as much intense pain and suffering, not just in the short term, but for years to come. But what does this bitter root look like? He gives us an example, right? Anyone who hears the words of the covenant with all its blessings and curses, and yet stubbornly persists in private, hidden sin, convincing themselves. Somehow, none of this that I've just heard applies to me. I'll be okay. God's not going to see this. God doesn't know. He doesn't care. I'm going to take the blessings on myself and ignore all the curses. And Moses says, that's like taking the seed from this plant and carefully planting it in your backyard and, and cultivating it and nurturing it and encouraging it to grow and grow and grow until its toxic presence takes over your entire life. That's what deceit does. Right? Ongoing sin that you repeatedly work really hard to cover up in, attempt to, in an attempt to deceive others and even to deceive God. When you hear the Holy Spirit convicting you that it's wrong over and over again and you're like, nah, I'm good. Do you understand the sheer lunacy of speaking to God like that? And the answer is no, of course you don't. None of us do, because if we did, none of us would ever do it. But here's the reality. God can command it. I can stand up here and preach it. You can stand up and publicly affirm it, and yet your heart can still stubbornly resist it. That's deceit, an evil poisonous weeds slowly spreading its tendrils further and further around your heart, choking out the life. Do you remember Pastor Michael's sermon from last week? Right? We all stood up. Choose life, choose death. Blessings or curses. This path or that path. This side of the room or that side of the room. Very visual, very clear, very cut and dry. But the person described here in the text is one who affirms all of that, but then goes on living their life as if it doesn't really apply to them personally. That the warnings aren't real. And we're going to hear in just a moment how God responds to just such a way of thinking. But before we go there, I want to say there is only one exit route from this way of thinking. There's only one off-ramp if you will. And that's to repent. Turn back. Confess the deceit. Name the toxic plant that has taken control of your life, of your heart. Drag it out into the light 
where God can destroy it and bring the cleansing and the healing into your life. Don't merely struggle with your sin. Repent of your sin before it eats you alive. Look, the singers on this weed, they hurt like crazy, but they're not going to kill you. But unconfessed, unrepentant, deceitful disobedience over time will eventually lead to destruction. So pray for help to repent. Confess it to a brother or a sister in Christ or come speak to one of us pastors. But do something about it today. This word from God is for you. Don't ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit pressing hard on you in this moment. Now the third and the final observation from this passage is the inevitability of God's punishment directed towards stubborn and rebellious people in verses 22 through 28. So like I said, the, the off-ramp for those living in repentance is, uh, for those living in disobedience is repentance. But the challenge of stubborn sin is that it pre- presents such a highly believable illusion of something good that our eyes are blinded completely to the bad that lies behind it. And we just cruise right on past that off-ramp as a result. And so Moses goes ahead and he lists in detail the very real judgments of God that wait those who continue to run headlong down this path that leads away from the Lord. Now these judgments are directed first and foremost towards the individual sinner. But then secondly, Moses lists further judgments towards the community as a whole as well. So first, judgment for individual sin. Look at verse 20. The Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man and the curses written in this book will settle upon him and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven and the Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with all the curses of the covenant written in this book of the law. This is brutal language. The judgment is final irrevocable. God is described as he's like steaming with anger, boiling up within him. Why so harsh? Well, first, because the people of God, they should know better, right? More has been revealed to them, so more is expected from them now as a result. Look, I can readily imagine someone falling asleep through the reading of Leviticus, okay? Fine. You, some of those details went over your head. But there's no possible way you could sleep through all the fiery sermons for Moses and still claim ignorance of the law as your defense. Even if you slept through the first 26 chapters of this, 
And you only heard the bit where he says, okay, everyone stand up. We're going to act this out now. Acting out the blessings and the curses. Even if that was the only thing you heard, that's more than enough to hold someone accountable for having a deceitful heart covering up stubborn, unrepentant sin. But secondly, the pouring out of God's wrath demonstrates that he is holy and he moves consistently against sin wherever he encounters it. His actions, they're not, they're not whimsical or capricious like ours. He is perfectly just and righteous in all of his judgments. Now as a display of his grace, he shows mercy to those who don't deserve it. But when he chooses to judge sin, he does so consistently to Jew and to Gentile alike. All nations, all people, everywhere fall under the fearsome and awful and terrifying judgment of the Lord. There is real evil in this world that deserves to be punished thoroughly and completely. And passages like this bring me comfort, knowing that God is not some absent landlord, sort of clueless and unaware of what's going on down here. Not paying attention to the intense pain and suffering and struggle of our lives. This passage is a reminder to me. He sees every last bit of it. He knows it and he will engage it. So if you're living in unrepentant sin, passages like we heard before our sermon from Psalm 139 should humble you and drive you to repent because one day soon he will return in judgment and it will be too late. But let me also add that, talking about Psalm 139, if you've been sinned against, then the opposite is true. This is a source of great comfort and encouragement that even in the darkest corners, even in the bleakest night, God sees you are not alone. And the wicked may try to cover up their paths or leave you fearful and alone in shame, but God's care and attention extends to all corners of the earth. And he has a power to bring rescue and redemption and healing. But so first, God judges individual sin. But secondly, God also judges corporate sin. Because our own mess always has a broader impact than we like to think. This is what Moses addresses next. Stubborn, unrepentant sin has the power to destroy not just individuals, but entire communities. So look at verse 22. And the next generation, your children who rise up after you, and the foreigner who comes from a far land will say, when they see the afflictions of that land, the entire land now, not just on an individual, when they see the afflictions of that land and the sicknesses with which the Lord has made it sick, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, Nothing sown, nothing growing, where no plant can sprout. An overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admon, Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. All the nations will say, why has the Lord done thus to this land? 
What caused the heat of this great anger? What a terrifying description, again, of God's wrath poured out, not just now on an individual, but now on an entire nation who have abandoned the covenant and chased after false gods. Instead of a fertile paradise of abundant milk and honey, the land will be reduced to a charred, barren wasteland. Now the principle we see here is, in my opinion, one of the strongest threads tying together the two Testaments, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The corporate nature of the people of God. The idea that the people of God rise together and fall together. Yes, absolutely, we're individually responsible for our sins. But we don't live in isolation and little bubbles. We live in community arm in arm with each other. That's been so clear throughout the book of Deuteronomy. And it continues to be clear throughout the New Testament as well, right? We come to faith in Christ as individuals. But it's together that we're built up as living stones into the church of God corporately. And so even so-called secret sins have a broader impact. For example, addiction to porn appears to be a victimless crime until it starts corroding your heart, eating away your ability to have stable relationships with other people, or worse still, setting you on a path towards acting out in ever more dangerous ways. Not to mention the broader impact on society as a whole, Because pornography encourages sex trafficking and trapping even more young people in cycles of poverty and abuse and slavery. Sin always multiplies. And whatever you may think is private and personal will eventually, if left unaddressed, always become public and communal. And thus, God's punishment can become public and communal as well. Because if we're truly one body, filled with one spirit, united by one Lord, one faith, one baptism, then even our so-called private sins, if left unconfessed, unrepented of, and unaddressed, will eventually begin to attack that one body union that we share as brothers and sisters in Christ and erode the foundations of the church. And it's for this reason that God cannot leave it be. And he will move to bring about the change necessary to purify and to cleanse his people. So don't ignore the terrifying reality of the wrath of God directed towards all sin wherever it is found. Now, as I said at the beginning of this sermon, this is this heavy material. Sin, judgment, these are unpleasant topics to talk about. It feels like this, this dark cloud brooding over the horizon. And yet, at the same time, passages like this, for me, make the life 
and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ shine ever more brightly. I'm guessing many of you are familiar with the bridge analogy, right? In evangelism context, this idea, you know, that the God's on one side of this chasm and we're on the other and and this gap is just so big and Jesus is like the bridge that allows us to cross from one side to the other. And now the significance of that analogy depends entirely on how wide you perceive that gap to truly be. And when you're looking at it in a tiny little tract, it doesn't always seem that big a deal. But passages like this in Deuteronomy 29 show the distance between God and us is, is, is vast. Right? The sin in our hearts and in the world around us is far worse than we like to think. Its effects are far more far-reaching. And its looming punishment is way, way, way more severe and dreadful than most of us can even imagine. The only image, (laughs) the only illustration that even comes close for me is when I stood on the very edge of the Grand Canyon and the ground just drops away a mile underneath me and miles ahead of me. It's like this terrifying sense of openness. And even that only scratches the surface of how great a distance exists between us living in sin and a holy God. Without Christ, there is no way forward. It's because our hearts were hard and impenetrable the Christ came into this dark world of deceit and disobedience. And when he died on the cross, he then took the full brunt of God's wrath and judgment that we read about today, the fiery, hot anger of the Lord. All unrepentant sinners have earned and deserve was poured out on Jesus Instead, he paid the penalty in full. As Paul says, he became sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so now, when, when, when you and I confess our sins and repent and put our faith in Jesus as Lord and King, then we are rescued from the coming judgments. And we can be cleansed. We can be made new. We're given new hearts that can finally receive God's love and respond with obedience. And we can have confident assurance of our future rest in the promised land of God's presence. What a gift. What an astonishing gift that truly is. So would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you this morning just overwhelmed thinking of the darkness in this world, convicted of the the indwelling sin that lingers in our own hearts, perhaps ever more aware 
of our deep, deep need for you, Lord, for your cleansing power, for the blood of Jesus Christ shed on our behalf so that we could be set free from the wrath of God. Lord, we thank you. We praise you and we pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear and to do the words of this covenant as your humble and obedient servants. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.